Following Eric Clapton's set, in which Robbie Robertson coolly saved the day, he introduced the next guest without actually naming him. You know this guy. The audience cheered with excitement as Neil Young staggered onto the stage. In addition to his guitar and harmonica, Young accidentally brought on a visible chunk of cocaine inside of his nostril to pair with his glazed-over eyes. I'd just like to say before I start, Young said into the microphone, it's one of the pleasures of my life to be able to be on this stage with these people tonight. He then played the riff on his harmonica that led the band through Helpless from his days with Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Young was backed by a mysterious voice on the chorus. It wasn't coming from any member of the band or anybody on stage. It was crystal clear in its delivery and extremely high in vocal register. For the music experts in the audience, they may have guessed it correctly. Joni Mitchell was working backstage with a microphone to add her voice. The big birds The strong Canadian connection followed Helpless into Neil Young's next song, Four Strong Winds. In 1961, Canadian legend and singer-songwriter Ian Tyson wrote Four Strong Winds for his Canadian folk duo Ian and Sylvia. Ian and Sylvia were represented by Albert Grossman, and Tyson allegedly wrote the song in 20 minutes in Grossman's apartment. In 1963, Ian and Sylvia released Four Strong Winds on an album of the same name, and it was quite popular in Canada, though it did not reach the same heights in the United States. However, the song was covered numerous times by other artists with more success. Neil Young would later record the song as the final track on his 1978 album, Comes a Time, but he played it two years earlier for his second song during the last waltz. And while introducing the song, Young credits Ian Tyson before jumping in on guitar and harmonica. Oh, yeah. 
And the band represents their normal instrumentation, with Danko also occasionally swooping in with his vocal harmonies. But the performance is largely Young singing alone. And following Neil Young, and in continuation of the Canadian portion of the show, the teased Joni Mitchell took the stage. As noted earlier, the band worked hard to ensure that they had Mitchell's songs down with their unorthodox chord changes. She started into Coyote, which was written in the same year, and the opening track on her album, Hajira. No regrets, Coyote. We just come from such different sets of circumstance. I'm up all night in the studios and you're early on your range. You'll be brushing out a broodmare's tail while the sun is ascending. And I'll just be getting home with my real to real. There's no comprehending just how close to the bone and the skin and the eyes and the lips you can get. I still feel so alone and still feel related like stations in some relay. Oh, not a, a hit and run driver, no, no, racing away. You just pick up a hitcher. The song, at least in its metaphorical sense, follows Mitchell's short-lived relationship with Sam Shepard, or as he becomes known in the song, Coyote. At the time, Dylan had hired Shepard to write the screenplay to a film based on his Rolling Thunder review tour, which Mitchell was part of. The two met, endured a whirlwind romance, but as the song attests, they were two different people, and it didn't last. And as Robbie later notes, she seemed to glow in the darkness as she delivered the performance. I know. Coyote's at my door He pins me in a corner and he won't take no He drags me out on the dance floor And they're dancing close and slow Now he's got a woman at home He's got another woman down the hall He seems to want me anyway Why'd you have to get so drunk And lead me on that way You just picked up a hitcher Prisoner of the white line Following Coyote, Mitchell then performed Shadows and Light, which appeared on her 1975 album, The Hissing of the Summer Lawns. The lyrics of the song explore the dichotomies experienced in everyday life. Shadows and light, blindness and sight, night and day, and wrong and right. The band backed her performance with their standard instruments. Now, the last waltz iteration of the song is in stark contrast to the original. On Mitchell's album, Shadow and Light is very sparse. It features her vocal with stacked harmonies and parts and using an ARP string machine. 
For the last waltz, the band essentially adds the entire band arrangement to this song. Very much in the style of Coyote, it features organ, drums, piano, bass, and guitar. And the last waltz version is also roughly a minute longer. Every picture has its shadows And it has some source of light In its entirety, it might not have been the strongest song for the last waltz. The energy is cool, slow, and not overly kinetic. But for her third song, she plays Furry Sings the Blues from her 1976 album, Hajira. The song is inspired by a visit Mitchell took to Beale Street in Memphis sometime before the last waltz. Beale Street, once a thriving district of music and culture, had become a more decrepit place in the 1970s. The surrounding area was being demolished, and the street itself was suffering from commercial closures. Mitchell's song describes this area at that time, naming Furry Lewis a blues musician who had lived in Memphis since 1906. Lewis had a long career, crossing paths with all sorts of musicians, including Bessie Smith, W.C. Handy, and the Rolling Stones. Mitchell met with him during the final stages of his life. He was 83 years old, living in a three-bedroom apartment in Memphis, with cataracts in his eyes and limited mobility that prevented him from performing. When Mitchell used Furry's name in her song, he was furious and claimed that he deserved royalties. According to Emmett Grogan, the song didn't work well as Mitchell's previous two due to the complicated time changes and the band's overpowering amplification. Young, entranced by Mitchell, missed one of his harmonic cues as well. Pawn shops glitter like gold tooth caps. In the gray decay, they chew the last few dollars off of Beale Street's carcass. Following Mitchell, perhaps the most controversial guest took the stage. Neil Diamond, despite being extremely nervous, according to Helm, Diamond dropped the iconic quote, I'm only going to do one song, but I'm going to do it good, before marching into Dry Your Eyes. Take your song out. Well, it's a newborn afternoon. 
And if you can't recall the singer Can you still recall the tune? Though the song a co-write with Robbie Robertson, it didn't really highlight the musical prowess of the band themselves, and it provided a different, slower feel to the concert. Maybe something that wasn't entirely welcome. While the performance is lacking, you know, there are a couple factors to consider. Helm and the rest of the band weren't thrilled about Diamond's inclusion, and also the fact that it was after midnight. The audience wasn't really responding with the same enthusiasm as they had at the beginning, and supposedly some of the crowd booed Diamond, and one individual screamed, Go back to Vegas. And coming out of the rough patch, it needed some energy. And Van Morrison was just the man for the job. After Neil Diamond's performance of Dry Your Eyes, the Northern Irish superstar Van Morrison came on stage to play two songs. Now Morrison was nervous. He had not performed in some time. He had taken a couple years off. And he later said in an interview, he needed to get away from music completely and ceased listening to it even for several months. He also considered leaving music altogether after several months of writer's block. And 20 minutes before he was due on, Morrison disappeared. He ran back to the hotel and he decided that he didn't look right. He changed. Then he wasn't going to go do it. His manager, Harvey Goldsmith, went back to the hotel, got him, and virtually pushed him on stage. The first song that Van Morrison did was Tour Allura, an Irish lullaby with Richard Emanuel. The origin of the traditional Irish-American song can be traced back to 1913 when composer James Roy Shannon wrote the song for a stage production. And while the song was used in the play, the song was later recorded and it was wildly successful, peaking at number one on the music charts in December of 1913. And the song resurfaced in 1944 when Bing Crosby covered it for the film Going My Way. This version of the song was quite successful as well, with the single version selling over a million copies and peaking at number four in the charts. From then on, the song was covered by many artists before Morrison sang it with Richard Manuel during the last waltz. Yeah, I feel the arms are hugging me. 
And according to Robbie, I had this great idea for him, a version of the Irish lullaby. I wanted him to play it with this arrangement I had in my head, but he didn't really get into it at first. He was going, well, what am I supposed to do with it after that? Go right into when Irish eyes are smiling and Danny boy? He thought it was a corny idea, but after a little coaxing, he had agreed. The band takes on their typical instrumentation here with Hudson on organ, Danko on bass, and Robertson on guitar, and Helm taps away at the drums. John Simon guests on the piano. The lyrics themselves come from the perspective of one who dreams of a past time with a nameless woman. Morrison wails these lyrics out, sounding every bit like the nostalgic and devastated protagonist. supporting musicians march to the finish with all the vocalists harmonizing for that final note before Helm drums in to finish the song. And if that wasn't already remarkable, Van Morrison's next number, Caravan, was something special. Now, the audience had been there for several hours. Regardless of what was put in front of them, naturally, there was a lull that began to form. The audience was tired after hours of food, drink, and music. That all changed when Morrison kicked into his tune, Caravan. In the caravan is lost way. Recorded on his seminal 1970 album, Moondance, Caravan is about gypsy life and the radio. Music critic Johnny Rogan described it as a romantic portrayal of gypsy life and a testimony to Morrison's love of the radio. And Morrison also based the song on real memories while living in a rural house in Woodstock, New York, where the nearest house was far down the road. Morrison gives it his all, running around on the stage with his frumpy, bedazzled getup. 
The band provides expert backing, the bass is thumping, the guitar is twanging, and the horn section punches through Morrison's dynamic vocal. And Morrison just didn't only bring the crowd up, but he definitely brings the band up to his level when he starts singing the lyrics of the song. As Helm remembers, Van burned through this tune. Turn it up, a little bit louder, radio. Complete with a kick step across the stage at the end. Van turned the whole thing around. God bless him for being the showman that he is. And Robertson also fondly remembers seeing Van perform Caravan. All of a sudden at the end, when Van starts kicking his leg up in the air, we're like, what's happening here? This is one of the most wonderful, out-of-control things I've seen him do. The hero of the day, his worried manager, Harvey Goldsmith, later said, it was electric. One of the most magical performances I've ever seen him do. It was unbelievable. He went out there and really stormed the place. And peer and friend Eric Clapton, who had performed just earlier, said, for me, Muddy Waters and Van Morrison steal the show. Van doing Caravan with the leg kicks is some of the greatest live music you'll ever see. But we can get down was really wrong, really wrong. And after that rip-roaring performance, Neil Young and Joni Mitchell came back on stage after Morrison waltzed off. And in show of Canadian solidarity, they accompanied the band through Acadian Driftwood. 
Driftwood, as we know, is a song that chronicles a family's trials and tribulations during the expulsion of the Acadians from Canada in 1755, and is essentially a Canadian-themed version of Dixie from their 1976 album, Northern Lights, Southern Cross. The performance of Acadian Driftwood at the last waltz was a bit rough around the edges. You know, Garth Hudson was brilliant on the accordion and the organ, and Danko and Helm delivered a steadfast performance, but, you know, Neil Young seemed off, probably partaking a little bit too much in the fun behind the stage. But his and Mitchell's harmonies brought an elegance to the song and its haunting chorus. However, the significance of the performance is more than the individual. And what I mean by that is there is a greater meaning. As Peter Moriera remembers, what was so spectacular about the performance was having these legends of Canadian rock collaborate on a song so rich in Canadian heritage. that the set was concluded it had been over three hours helm recalled that his hands were bloodied from the non-stop drumming but hudson remained on stage quote making amazing sounds on his keyboard emmett grogan and his team of poets began to take the stage one at a time reciting their poems it all boils down to is pulse and breath song is the breath music is the pulse poets the naked wizards power animals of human pulse the mysteries of breath, speech of mind. A handful of those, seven to be exact, who bend the spine, the pulse of breath, the line of vision, as old as the race, the vision seat in the, in the Greenwich Village, in the North Beach, in the and the incomplete fullness of the Haight-Ashbury, finally blossomed in the minds of some American eyes. Seven of these American eyes, seven pairs of these American eyes are with us tonight. We bring back to ourselves tonight our elders, our own voices, and our purest visions. I'm proud to present Sweet William. Hell's angels, hard angel. What? The fuck's the matter with you guys? Uh, but yeah, they're trying to help me, huh? Hell's angels, hard angel, soft as death. Bathed in tears for angels dead, found murdered in a Florida swamp. Far away and still alive, I know some of me died there too. What they don't know is that every time they kill one of us, ten more rise up to take his place. 
Every Hell's Angels lives every fucking breath of life and death. That spirit is forever. Of death is alive, in death as in life. A Hell's Angels is his own hero. A Hell's Angels is the living truth. A Hell's Angels is the living love. The truth is the only law Hell's Angels live by. Grease pan, chain drive, bloodied angels, men alive in this time of countless time and all the hells they bless. Men risen from the dirt, the scum, the slime, the lowest of the low, the fighters who never gave up and never give in, who lived through the shit, the lies, the blood and the sin, who were told not to look but had eyes to see, who finally blasted the rot on wheels of fire and have the guts to live in the flame of being free, the tough lovers of brotherhood who have the balls to be as beautiful as they are and are as beautiful as the truth of themselves, Hell's Angels. Uh. Following was Lenore Kandal, who was born in January of 1932 in New York City. She met figures such as Gary Snyder and Allen Ginsberg, and after spending some time with Jack Kerouac, he based the character of Romana Schwartz off her in his book Big Sur. She authored The Love Book, which was deemed pornographic at the time by the police. So the psychedelic shop where her book was sold was raided and all copies were confiscated. In 67, she spoke at the Great Human Beaten in Golden Gate Park, sharing the stage with Ginsburg, Michael McClure, Schneider, Jefferson Airplane, The Grateful Dead, and more. And she was the only woman to speak. She published a second book and joined the Diggers in 1966. And she followed her fellow San Francisco poets in a reciting of a poem entitled Joy during the last waltz. This is a poem I wrote tonight. It's added tonight. I'll be a bridge. I'll be a tightrope. Come dance with me across my sparkling nerves. This bridge begins right now. The star's wide open and there is no gate. Your foot's right in the middle of the flame. You'd better dance or burn. The clowns are jostling in the wings. The lion tamers shed his skin. Your secrets are the book I'm reading from. This here parade is on. I've cast the runes. There's honey in the sky. I want to roll in sugar till the comets chime. I'll be a bridge. Come dance with me across myself. I'll dance with you. This bridge begins right now. Michael McClure was next, born in 1932 in Kansas. One of his most famous moments came in 1955 when he was one of the seven poets to read at the Sixth Gallery in San Francisco, reading his poem For the Death of a Thousand Whales. The night was hailed as arguably one of the most important dates in American literature. His first book, The Passage, came out later that year, and McClure settled in San Francisco, writing and performing in Golden Gate Park. He was later famously seen at the San Francisco Zoo reading his works to the lions, and his obscenity-filled play, The Beard, was performed in San Francisco in 65 and soon all the way across the country, often having its actors or directors arrested for violating censorship. 
He spoke alongside a lot of fellow guests and people like Allen Ginsberg at The Human Being in 67, and in 1970, he waded into music, co-authoring Janis Joplin's Mercedes Benz. His prominence in San Francisco beat community led him to Grogan, which in turn led him to Last Waltz. And unlike most that recited poetry at Winterland that night, McClure's passage, Canterbury Tales, made it into the final film. One that Aprila, with his sure sota, the drought of merch hath pierced to the rota, and bathed every vein in swish liqueur, of which vertu engendered is the fleur, than Zephyrus ache with his sweet of braith, and spirit hath in every holt and haith the tender acropus, and the younger sonna hath in the ram his half a zirona, than small apulus mock and melodia, that slape in all the neat with open ear, so pricketh him natur in here courages, than long and folk to goon on pilgrimages, to ferna halvus, cooth and sandry landes, and specially from every shirazenda of Engelan to counter bari they wenda, the holy blissful martyr for to seca, that him hath holpen one that they were seca. Afterwards, Diane de Prima, who was born in 1934 in New York, took the stage. She had spent some of her early life in the Greenwich Village and had joined the beat movement. In 1967, she moved to San Francisco, linking up with the Diggers and working on her own writing. And over the course of her career, she would publish more than 40 books. After McClure, she took the stage and read a very brief, and I mean brief, poem, which consisted of one line entitled, Get Your Cutthroat Off My Knife, followed by Revolutionary Letter Number 4 from her book, revolutionary letters before concluding with her poem the fire guardian a very a very brief one-line poem from the 50s get your cut throat off my knife and only slightly longer poem from the 60s revolutionary letter number four Left to themselves, people grow their hair. Left to themselves, they take off their shoes. Left to themselves, they make love, sleep easily, share blankets, dope, and children. They are not lazy or afraid. They plant seeds, they smile, they speak to one another. The word coming into its own, touch of love on the brain, the ear, we return with the sea, the tides. We return as often as leaves, as numerous as grass. Gentle, insistent, we remember the way. Our babes toddle barefoot through the cities of the universe. And a different... Uh, Poem, short poem from the 70s to take you to where we are, called The Fire Guardian. It's all one sentence, but it goes around in circles. Let yourself be seen as a shadow in the light, or as a thin lens color does not pass through. No yellow glow, no blue fierce purpose. This spilling liquid held in vase of flesh pours over as sight, as touch, it is light interlaced with light makes these worlds bud. Tensile web, eye to eye, skin smooth 
as spiders' belly, tentative and ecstatic as lizards on crumbling sandstone molecules which dance in their sudden expected brains like stars in Ponderosa dance in ours when we fall to sleep on beds of pine needles in the arms of our own black pain and wake cresting again, riding invisible soul stuff. We call it joy. Robert Duncan followed, who was born in January of 1919 in California, was an orphan from a young age before being adopted by a very strange and religious family. He began writing poetry as a teenager and studied at the University of California, Berkeley for two years before spending some time at Black Mountain College and ultimately landing up in New York City in 1938. He became immersed in the burgeoning art movement before meeting surrealist artists like Roberto Mata and Hans Hoffman. When Duncan was drafted into the army in 1941, he declared his homosexuality and was promptly discharged. His piece, The Homosexual in Society, appeared in the publication of Politics in 1944 and was notable due to Duncan being one of the first literary figures to come out as gay. In 1946, he moved to the Bay Area, where he became one of the central figures of the San Francisco Renaissance of the 50s and 60s. He gained a reputation of a well-known poet and writer and often delved into political issues. He read the poem entitled Transgressing the Real during the last waltz. In the war they made a celestial cave. In the war now I make a celestial cave, a tent of the night, the sun no longer striking day upon the earth, but light years away, a diamond spark and the host of stars, sparkling net, bejeweled wave of dark, over us, distant coruscations, play of light or of intellectual brilliancy, in which I pretend a convocation of powers. Man and woman, child and king, the ages and ladders of being, the labor of birth and the release of death, so compounded therein, they draw from the war itself, withdrawing this breath between them. In this rite, the great magician stirs in his dream, and the magician dreaming murmurs to his beloved, Thou art so near to me, thou art a phantom that the heart would see. And now the great river of their feeling grows so wide, its shores grow distant and unreal. Next was Frank Reynolds, who was the, quote, secretary of the Hells Angels in the 1960s. He was also a member of the Diggers, a good friend of Michael McClure. He had dabbled in poetry, in some of which McClure transcribed. In 1968, he was living in a house with Grogan and some of the other Diggers, and he ended up reading a poem during the last waltz. One and one make three. Earth is a third planet from the sun. The marriage of heaven and hell is beyond any one way. So give me my flesh for just a little while, and I will remember a lifetime. There is air, land, sea, fish, flesh, fowl, and my flesh is meat of the universe. I live a lifetime. Verily, I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. Then forever shall your love spin the pinwheels of your rainbow mind. 
Purple in the indigo, shall we go now? Through the even, on a sunbeam, swift as a shooting star. And last was Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who was born in 1919. His father had died shortly after he was born, and his mother was soon committed to a mental institution, leading to a very complicated childhood. Eventually, in 1941, he joined the Navy, commanding submarine chasers in the Atlantic, fighting at Normandy, and seeing the remains of Japan after the atomic bomb drops. These experiences instilled in him a lifelong anti-war stance, and after the war, he returned to school, obtaining a master's degree at Columbia University and a PhD at the University of Paris in 1951. He then moved back stateside to San Francisco, taking part in the San Francisco Renaissance with figures that were at the last waltz. He was later arrested and charged with selling obscene materials at his bookstore, City Lights, for selling copies of Ginsburg's Howl in 56. He was taken to court and acquitted, becoming a landmark First Amendment case that ultimately set precedent for publications of controversial works. Ferlinghetti's work consistently challenged the status quo, questioning political movements and generating awareness for change. At the last waltz, he performed the piece Loud Prayer, appearing in the final film as well. Let us pray. Our Father, whose arts in heaven, hallow be thy name. Unless things change, thy wisdom come and gone, thy will will be undone on earth as it isn't heaven. Give us this day our daily dread at least three times a day. And forgive us our trespasses on love's territory, for thine is the wisdom and power and glory. Oh, man. And as the poets performed, backstage was chaotic. Helm later recalled that Governor Jerry Brown was about Muddy Waters and his team of Margolin and Perkins needed to make a flight to Chicago, but in all the chaos, management couldn't get him a ride to the airport. Helm took matters into his own hand, and his friend Don Tyson, a successful businessman that the band had crossed paths with back in Canada, arranged for the crew to be whisked off. And to add to the chaos, there was the matter of Bob Dylan. Dylan was in the midst of working on his self-directed film, Ronaldo and Clara, slated for 1978. Though he agreed to appear in the last waltz concert, he was hesitant to appear in Scorsese's film, fearing that it would make his own project less impactful. Though there was a loose arrangement in place for Dylan to be featured in the film, he backed out during intermission. This was a disaster. Warner Brothers was under the impression that Dylan would appear in the film and without him the project would not go forward. This prompted a stressful frantic negotiation, and with Robertson and Scorsese all trying to persuade him to change his mind. Ultimately, it was Bill Graham who saved the day, convincing Dylan to allow two songs to appear in the final film. And after the intermission, the band took the stage once more. Hudson led off their second set with a wonderful and eerie performance of The Genetic Method.
And with a rocking start to the new set, the band attempted to ride the momentum into their first ever live performance of Robertson's newly penned tune, Evangeline. She stands on the banks of the mighty Mississippi. Used to waltz on the bank of the mighty Mississippi the whole night through. The riverboat gambler went off to make a killing and bring it on back to you. Helm recalls that they limped through it in a, quote, sort of country two-step, reading the lyrics off of cue cards. And due to this clear lack of rehearsal and the fact that the song really wasn't finished, it was no surprise that it wasn't one of the most memorable moments of the last waltz. It was later revived during the additional shoots at the MGM soundstage with Emmylou Harris, which we will get into later. Feeling uncertain with the last tune, the band leapt into their most comfortable. The concert erupted as the wait rang out at Winterland. I pulled into Nazareth just a feeling by half past ten. I just need to find a place where I can lay my show had already been going on for hours, but the band gave such an energetic performance of the weight that it was hard to tell. Helm bellowed out the verse lyrics and the audience and supporting musicians all jumped in on the chorus. While the performance was remarkable, it would be treasured to audiences at the show and later on vinyl, but not in the film, as it was later replaced in favor of a reshot version with the Staple Singers. We'd like to bring out one more very good friend of ours, Robertson spoke into the mic, followed by a pause to build suspense, Bob Dylan.
much hoopla behind the scenes, Dylan finally took the stage with the pair down set. The crowd was ecstatic, cheering loudly as Dylan took the stage and the band led into Baby Let Me Follow You Down. The traditional folk song that was popularized in 1950 by blues guitarist Eric Von Schmidt. The song is best known for its appearance on Bob Dylan's debut album, Bob Dylan, and was now taking a new life on stage with the band. The rocking version got the crowd pumped after several hours, and the treat that was Bob Dylan and the band never lost its shine. are given a rendition of Hazel, the tune that appeared on Dylan and the band's Planet Waves. The slower tune really shifts the pace, but Hazel is an underrated gem, and the band is at one of their finest moments musically. Hazel Moon dust in your eye You're going somewhere Dylan also provided an excellent vocal that is consistently accented by Robertson's lead licks. Next was I Don't Believe You, She Acts Like We Never Have Met, a song from Dylan's 1964 album Another Side of Bob Dylan, a particularly compelling rendition as well, the mixture of Robertson's riffage again at a high point of the song with Manuel's great piano really fills out the song in a new way. But I can't get close to her at all. 
band then follows that with a return to Planet Waves with Forever Young. Beautifully, the song features harmonies between Dylan and the band, and as the concert is rearing to its final conclusion, Forever Young perfectly encapsulates the celebration of the music in the band and their relationship in particular with Bob Dylan. May God bless and keep you always. May your wishes all come true. May you always do for others. And let others do for you. May you build a ladder to the stars. And after the marathon run with Dylan, it was time to conclude the concert in the only way the band knew with a rendition of I Shall Be Released. Dylan began the tune as the guests of the last waltz joined the stage in multiple capacities from instrumentation to sing-along. Manuel, whose version on music from Big Pink is revelatory, takes the second verse before being joined again by the band's peers. We also spot Ringo Starr, the former Beatle, and Stephen Stills of Crosby, Stills, Nash, who are poking around the historic night before joining on stage for the moment. And you cannot forget Ron Wood of the Rolling Stones as well. They say everything can be replaced They say the distance is not near
and I Shall Be Released is the perfect closer, but it wasn't really the end. As all the artists lingered on stage, Robertson announced that the party was just about to begin, and they were all welcome to join. And with that, Ringo Starr and Levon, now both behind the drum kits, snapped into a groovy beat. The concert had now turned into a spontaneous jam, and the crowd cheered. They were joined by guitarist Ronnie Wood, sporting his finest fake tuxedo shirt, and Eric Clapton. And before long, Garth, Rick, and Robbie joined in, along with Dr. John and Paul Butterfield. And eventually, the stage was full of activity again. First Jam is best characterized as a loose, boogie-style number, with Wood, Clapton, Robertson, and Stills, and Young all swapping guitar licks with Butterfield cutting loose on the harp throughout. And shortly after, there's a second jam. It's slower, it's funkier, and it's in a blues style. I'd say it's often propelled by Dr. John at his piano and Garth Hudson. And it's also worth mentioning Carl Radel joining on bass. But the song now mainly features the glut of guitarists on stage. Stephen Stills rips into his part, and it's also propelled by a swath of solos from Clapton, Wood, and Robertson over the course of 17 minutes.
finally, at 15 past two, the band returned on stage for one last song, the classic Don't Do It, which displays their full exhaustion as much as their undeniable chemistry. The sudden rush of triumph and sadness washed over the exhausted group as they left the stage, drenched in sweat by this point, blood and tears. They had just completed the ultimate marathon. Not only had they played over 40 songs with their peers and friends, they had just completed the marathon that was their humble beginnings in southern Ontario in 1957 when Robbie Robertson met Ronnie Hawkins and Levon Helm. And that eventually led to Levon Helm, Robbie Robertson, Rick Danko, Richard Manuel, and Garth Hudson to change the face of rock music as we know it. The group that left the stage wouldn't perform as the band in that same iteration again. It was the end of an era. The band was a behemoth behind the curtain, never showy and never boastful, but always impactful. And as the evening faded into morning, the concert that was the last waltz was complete but it was just the beginning of what would become what audiences today remember of the legendary moment in history. Thank you for listening to the Band of History. This was our third part in our multi-part Last Waltz episodes. And uh, it was a fun one. We've really just now gone over the concert um, from pre-production through production through the actual concert itself. 
Next, we will be talking about the filmmaking process and post-production and actually crafting the film, which a lot of people consider as the last waltz. It's funny because, you know, the concert was the first idea and it wasn't a film until later. So it's really interesting to compare and contrast. And that's why I used the raw audio from the actual show here, not the dubbed audio, like I mentioned in previous episodes. So, you know, we really hope you enjoyed this one. Uh, we've been really enjoying making it. So make sure if you uh, like the content here in the podcast, you can follow us online. We're at uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, anywhere you can think of on social media. We're there at The Band Podcast. You can consider becoming a Patreon, supporting the show on a monthly basis. Uh, there's a lot of great exclusive articles, archives, and other things there. You can do that at patreon.com slash thebandahistory. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, and we will catch you at the next one. Thank you very much. Thank you.